This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. We like to call Fridays the brightest conversation in Hamilton Radio for good reason, because we bring in really smart people and people with lots of interesting opinions to chat about a whole bunch of different things. And today, sitting in the uh, sitting in the studio with me, who is going to go through this stuff? A guy whose work I think everybody admires. I do. I love his work. Graham Mackay from the Hamilton Spectator, editorial cartoonist. Thanks for coming in. Oh, what a pleasure to be here, Scott. Uh, we do have a lot of stuff to get through, so let's start rolling, because today at City Hall, uh, councillors were talking, among other things, I was watching a little bit of this today, uh, really makes me happy I don't watch council meetings every single day. Um, but one thing that came up that I thought was really, um, I thought was well-placed was a discussion about naming the forecourt of Hamilton City Hall after Bob Morrow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that something, I mean, do you think that's a good idea? Do you think Bob Morrow is, if we're going to name something after a mayor, is he the mayor? Uh, when I think of a mayor, I've always thought of Bob Morrow as being the quintessential, you know, uh, Mayor Quimby of, of, of Hamilton, really. <laughs> and is that just because when you and I and most people have, for the early part of our adult mm-hmm. lives, mm-hmm. that was burned into our brain that he well, was the mayor? I'm f- I'm 48 years old for your uh, listening on it. Actually, 49, sorry. And uh, yeah, I was around, he was, he was, he started, I guess, in 82 and they went so. all the way up Six to terms. Two, 2000 was the last so that is in the mind of, of most people, at least you're and my age, who are politically inclined, that that was the, the picture of the mayor. And he, he filled it very nicely. He was great at ceremonial stuff. He, he, there are legacies left in the city. He wore the chain him. very handsomely. Yes. <laughs> and then he didn't. But that's well, <laughs> another story, apparently. But he, he's one of the... See, to me, and again, depending on your age... Whoever the prime minister is at the time when you first are old enough to r- contemplate that there is such a thing as a prime minister, that person, I think, always seems to sort of in your mind be the picture of the prime minister. Mm-hmm. For better or for worse, depending on who the person is, mm-hmm. uh, that's who I think we imagine as a prime minister. So mm-hmm. Bob Morrow is kind of that guy, mm-hmm. I think, for a generation of Hamiltonians. He is the mayor. I would say Vic Cops for a previous generation mm-hmm. was mm-hmm. that guy. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I, when I was born, Pierre Trudeau was the prime minister, and he went on for 16 years. Right. And I became interested in politics when I was like, what, 12, 13, like everyone else who's in this business. So after that time, you just think, why are you like lingering around? It's like I've had this one prime minister, and the same sort of thing happened with Bob Morrow. When I came on the scene in uh, 1997, it was like, this is the same guy who's mayor. <laughs> when I was like 13 years old, he's still around. And I'd gone to Europe and lived there and I'd, I'd, I'd gone to school in Ottawa and I came back and the, and the same guy is the mayor. Nobody could beat him. Nobody could beat him. But no one really seemed to care though. I think he was seen cast as the guy who was in charge of the city. And, uh, you know, you had Baldessaro and a few, you know, fringe guys that would, would challenge him, but it, it took al- amalgamation to actually unseat him. But was that because so many people saw him as unbeatable? So why run against him? He's he's so ensconced. He's so synonymous now with the mayoralty of this city. Why even take? Why waste my time and my money to take a shot at a guy I can never beat? Yeah, I mean, it, eventually, you're right. Amalgamation eventually hurt. Yeah, but it it is bizarre in that I've I've covered many uh, mayoral elections in in the twenty years I've been the editorial cartoonist, and there's always been a, a slate of. You know, candidates, like big name candidates, David Christofferson, uh, uh, Bob Wade, a lot of big heavyweight uh, politicians. A lot of guys named Bob. A lot of Bobs, yeah. <laughs> if you're named Bob and you're worth Bob's, anything in this town, you've run for mayor. He's not just your uncle, he's your mayor. <laughs> yeah. 
But uh, yeah, he he obviously had a lot of weight. It might be because there's a lack of social media. I mean, we all know social media has a a big local uh, presence. And with a lack of that back in the 80s and the 90s, maybe it it just didn't resonate with people to run against this guy. Yeah, I I look at this and I think you look down the road at Toronto. Toronto had a bunch of... I mean, Toronto, you never got a mayor who stayed. Crombie was popular for mm. a period of time and then Eggleton was there for a while yeah, but it that. was it was boom 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 mm-hmm. boom I mean it was a there's a rollover of, yeah. of people who were mayor yeah. Yeah. there and I just don't know is it because Hamilton at that time was I hate to say this was Hamilton politics just kind of boring like there's no huge issue well through those years uh, Sheila Copps she she was in the Rat Pack in 84 and then throughout those years she eventually you know she was very a vocal voice Maybe we only have room for one outspoken politician. Maybe. And Maybe she, that's she it. took the, f- the forefront of, of representation. That's all that the people of Hamilton had room for in their mind. But, but you mentioned amalgamation. That was a, that's a great point. Uh, mm-hmm. Look at the two elections ago when the stadium was in full mm-hmm. uproar. And that, for the first time around, almost certainly cost Fred Eisenberger his job. He got mm-hmm. reelected, but that was the issue. That was mm-hmm. the thing. And if you don't have those things that really fire people up and get them geared up. It seems like the only issue that permeated for for Mayor Bob Morrow was the the whole Gore Park mess, remember, in in 82? And and then after that, what was it? I mean, it was just sort of keeping the declining city uh, intact. So you're, are, are you okay then? If you're going to have, we have Vic Cops, we had Cops Coliseum. It's now, mm-hmm. I guess Vic changed his name to First Ontario. Mm. I'm not really sure. <laughs> um, but uh, are you okay with them naming this place after Bob Morrow? Uh, well, I, I have my issues as I go forward of, of naming anything after our civic politicians, really. There's, there's, as we get on, it just gets a little tired. But I think if there's one guy that should have some some kind of representative, if we've got Jackson Square, if you've got these other things, Cops Coliseum, then we should have something for Bob Morrow. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. The idea of naming the forecourt of City Hall after former Mayor Bob Morrow, this was up for discussion today at Hamilton City Hall. And just before the break, you were saying you're not... I don't want to put words in your mouth. You're not a huge fan necessarily of the no, naming well, of well, politicians stuff? Uh, I know you got to name buildings after things, though. And I guess it's historically that's what you do. You name. And, and we, have a, a, we have a whole list of, of politicians here. Like, we don't have a lot of Sheila Copps things. She was... No, we don't. I mean, well, I mean, unless you count, unless you by extension... Yeah. Say Cops Coliseum, so but, her name is kind of, but that's but that's not even a thing anymore. People are going to be left left off, and Bob Morrow has been the guy that's been left off for for a lot of years. So finally, we're we're going to check off that box and say, okay, now we can get Bob Morrow. You know, you bring up an interesting point though, is that Sheila Cops probably, and you touched on it a moment ago. Other than Bob Morrow, for a long time, was the Hamilton politician. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she's not na- nothing's named after her yet. Well, I guess it. it kind of hurt her having a father as a mayor and having a coliseum named after him for so I many suppose. years. But now that's gone, maybe we can start a new sort of legacy for Sheila as opposed to See, I'm a, I, and you know this and people listening know this, we've talked about this before. I'm a big believer in honoring people in the city. I think it does good things for the city. If you've done something, if you've brought a claim or, mm-hmm. you know, we just, they're naming a park after Russ Jackson yeah. and then we, you know, the arena after Pat Quinn and Harry Howell and yeah. Bill Friday. Those to me are good things. 
They're good for the city. The frustration that I have, and I applaud the councillors who are beginning to do better at this. Mm-hmm. It's beginning to be better that they they just decided on their own, let's name a park, a field after Melissa Tancredi, the soccer player. Mm-hmm. Great. Perfect. That's mm-hmm. exactly what we should be doing. But all up until this point, Graham, it's always been, we're really fast to name something after politicians. Mm-hmm. I mean, Bernie Morelli... Mm-hmm. Lovely man, lovely politician, but he had just passed away and they said, let's name something after him, the community center. I have no beef with Bernie Morelli. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that was, when you look at how it, ta- ha- in the past, historically has taken a long time for average citizens to get mm-hmm. something named after them. Politicians, mm-hmm. it's lickety mm-hmm. split. Yeah, it is. But um, let's also look to the recent example of Gord Downey, you know, the death of Gord Downey. And we got we got all very passionate and sad when he died. And all of a sudden there's talk of putting a plaque on, on Cops Coliseum. Why? Because he had three sellout crowds with, with the Tragically Hip or, or yep. something like that. I don't know. Yeah, he was the was. first to sell out Cops Coliseum, as yeah. it was called back then, three times in a right. row. So I think they've already voted. They're going to put a plaque up. Uh, so does that mean that Garth Brooks is going to have a plaque because he was the first to sell it out five nights in well, a row? Well, that's, that's what I mean. It's selective in many cases. Politicians will get honored and other politicians who are just equally as, you know, they, they sh- as deservant should have a, some kind of thing named after them. I mean, think of all the long-term politicians we've had in, in, this, in this city and a lot of them, you know, haven't been recognized at all. And then there's a lot of things that have been named that have been long forgotten about. Um, the Allen Expressway, uh, the or the Allen Skyway Bridge. Like, who is mm. who is that guy? You know, we call it the Skyway Bridge, but his name for some guy named Allen. I, I have no clue who he is. I wonder about how long it's going to be until we completely forget that the link is named after mm-hmm. Lincoln Alexander. It's just the link, and the fact that it is such a mm perfectly fitting name for a kind of, it's a road, it's the link. It, mm-hmm. it links something. So it, I'm convinced that we're a generation away from nobody knowing what well, that's if, all about. If you look at the cops Coliseum thing, you know, nothing is permanent. And look at Henderson, Jurovinsky, you know. Brian Timmis, Brian Timmis Field. Now I think they're going to rename something, but it was by Ivor Wynn Stadium, which is also. Ivor Wynn is another example. Uh, so what happens to Ivor Wynn? So this is not a permanent thing. It's for the, I guess, the generation and maybe a few generations after. But, you know, the Bob Morrow forecourt may become something else. If I think of, of a more famous forecourt is, is uh, Nathan Phillips Square in Toronto. Like, I don't know when that was named. I don't even know when he, I think he was the mayor, what, back in the 50s? I don't know. But the difference, though, with that. And what really works for that is that has become a name that people, they don't even know who Nathan Phillips was, but you, everyone knows it's Nathan Phillips Square. That mm. It would be hard to change that name, now, I think, sure. in Toronto, because yeah. you know it as that. Is anybody, maybe they will, is anybody going to say, hey, let's go to the Bob Morrow forecourt? Hmm. <laughs> I, I, I mean, look, it's a lovely well, gesture and we should be doing these kind of things yeah. for people who have done amazing mm-hmm. things in the city. But The other example is John C. Monroe airport at Mount Hope Airport or whatever they call it, the long convoluted name that they give it. I still call it uh, Hamilton Airport, uh, but but you're supposed to call it the John C. Monroe Airport, mm-hmm. right? And is he being forgotten? I think a lot of people have forgotten or don't even know who he is. If you're of a certain age, you know who he is, obviously. I, as I say, I applaud the council for doing more of these things. I think we've got enough places. One thing I would love to see, quite honestly, and I don't know why we don't do this, and there's probably some reason, but every time we we allow a developer to build a new subdivision, 
we create 10, 12, 15, 30 mm-hmm. new streets. Mm-hmm. Why could we not say, you know what, th- instead of naming them Butterfly Lane and Rainbow Court, why not say, you know, five of those, we get to actually name those yeah. streets. So we can, for people who are worthy of it, maybe not so much worthy that they're worthy of a stadium or of an arena or a main street, but we can do this and we can, I, I think that would be a great way to do it. The problem might be if, if the politician has a pretty bad name, you know, I, I'm trying, I won't think of any examples or I, I can come up with some, but I won't name them. Yeah. But it doesn't have to be a politician <laughs> even. <laughs> You're listening to the Scott Radley show weeknights from seven to nine on AM 900 CHML. Uh, Graham, of course, editorial cartoonist of the Hamilton Spectator. And I, you know, I I do want to um, bring it around to that for a moment because we've been talking about a lot of local politicians. Mm-hmm. Who who <laughs> time and I mean era, generation that way, time not being an issue. Who, who did you love to draw? What local politicians do you just love it when they get themselves in the news because they are golden uh, for an artist. Sam Marula's always been fun to draw, but the problem with him is that his hair's always changing. <laughs> He's always got a new hairdo. You so I got I sit next to Andrew Dreschel and I was like, Okay, what's Marula's hair looking like these days? And he's good. Andrew's very good. He he he's got a good. He's good at describing of, yeah. like the hairstyle. And then and, and then we have the which go is completely on ironic because Andrew, of course, <laughs> has no. Well, he's follically challenged. Let's yes. Say. Well, I'm looking at someone who else. Yes. Well, none of us <laughs> should be very good at describing <laughs> hair. But but uh, he's he's always fun to draw. Um, the Mayor Bob. Eisenberg, Fred Eisenberger, sorry, is is it's okay saying I'm Bob. Every other mayor's Bob. Every other <laughs> your mayor's Bob. <laughs> he's he's fun. He's fun to draw. Um, I'm thinking of. Can I just tell you that Mayor Fred, your your pictures of Mayor Fred, his face has gotten longer and longer and longer the longer you've drawn him. At at some point, he's simply going to look like a face <laughs> with no body. Well, that's you could all say that about my Justin Trudeau. His nose keeps getting longer and longer and longer. But um, yeah, with with Eisenberger. He tends to be more Frankenstein-like, um, <laughs> but he's he's been around a long time, really. Um, you know, for 15 years I've been drawing him, I, I'm thinking, when he's been really active in mm-hmm. the civic affairs. So you can go back to the first round of when he was mayor, and the st- my look of him then is totally different because, you know, his his big deal back then was the, the stadium. Now it's about LRT. So I don't I don't really refer back to those cartoons much, but um, I, it'd be interesting to see how how things have changed in the short amount of time because we had what Bertina in between the two terms. Yes, right? uh, but yeah, he's his he's got the droopy eyes and uh, he, his hair is is consistent, unlike some of the other counselors. And he, he, although the the inconsistent thing with him is that he often has facial hair, he grows beards now and then. So. You know, that that can be a bit challenging to keep up with. Yeah, well, they they do. I, as I say, I was uh, I was home today during the day, and this may say more about my lack of a life than anything else. But I happened to flip on the Hamilton City Council, flipping channels, mm. uh, and there it was. And I noticed all of a sudden, well, Jason Farr now has a mm. goatee. Didn't even know that was the case. Yeah. So there, you know, yeah. you, you, you got to keep up on these things. Yeah, it's you know, and uh, our esteemed premier Kathleen Wynne, who's famous for her glasses. If you've noticed recently, she's not wearing her glasses anymore. So, you know, those are the sort of things that were so fun to draw. But if she if she's taking away those identifiers, it's very challenging for people like she us. no longer looks like the popcorn king. <laughs> yeah, or Earl Redenbacher, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Who? I mean, anyone else on council that you just pray that they do something? St- 
either stupid or newsworthy, <laughs> either one, so that you can have a shot at them, drawing them? Um, uh, I was saying today, actually, someone was asking the very same question, and I, I like drawing Judy Partridge. She's fun to draw. I, would, I wouldn't see that. What, what, what is unique or well, she's different got a, about Judy? She's got a really good head of hair, and it's fun <laughs> to draw her hair, and you could morph that into all kinds of things. But she's been... She's been, uh, she's behaved herself on council. Um, uh, I'm thinking Donna Scully, she's got a good head of hair. And usually women aren't, aren't the easiest people to draw, but for whatever reason, I'm, I'm sort of liking drawing those two. Maybe it's just been, I'm, I'm up for the challenge to draw them and I think they've worked out. Is there anybody though, is there anybody that is on council now or in the past that they are, this is going to sound insulting, it's not really meant to, but they are so kind of average looking as a face or whatever that people who see the cartoon don't necessarily yeah. right away recognize them, that you have to do something extra. Yeah. Um, I I actually had to draw all these counselors for a feature that we've got in the spec there next week on uh, the counselors. And um, the one guy that I had r- a real problem with was Lloyd Ferguson. And, I, and I've drawn him a few times, but... Um, for whatever reason, I couldn't I couldn't nail him at all, and and I, whatever came out is well, that's him. But I think I always picture him wearing uh, those librarian glasses that are, you know, at the tip of your nose, and then he's got the you know that string that holds the glasses together. I don't know if he wears them, but he always comes off as the sort of person that wears those sort of glasses. And and for whatever reason, I wasn't putting those glasses in in the cartoon. And like the sh- the the Kathleen Wynn thing, it just doesn't work. You know, it, these accessories are very important to a cartoonist. I remember wa- watching or listening to something with some impressionist. I don't mean a painting impressionist, like a, a voice impressionist who imitates celebrities mm-hmm. and stuff. I can't remember who it was. And this person was talking about how long he had to stand in front of a mirror doing it until mm. it clicked, until he got it. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden he knew when he got When you're first drawing someone... Mm-hmm. Is it easy to catch them or do you crumple up the paper 25 times before you can get them? It always depends. Um, uh, I remember I had a a hard time drawing um, John Tory when he was the PC leader and I actually did a cartoon on the time because I couldn't, I couldn't nail that, his image at all. Uh, But over time he's become easier. But that's the thing is that uh, politicians tend to, uh, cartoonists you know, they'll have the challenging time at the beginning, but they, they almost take on a life of their own depending on whatever, however they behave in public. So, you know, a Trump that I've drawn now is way different from a Trump that I drew, uh, you know, two, two years ago. And actually, I've, I've been drawing him for the first time. I have a drawing of Donald Trump going back to 1992 or 91 when I was working at the student newspaper and I, I wow. drew him. Because he was a big deal back then, but um, to compare that picture of him when he actually had dark hair, but the same kind of shape of the the lid and everything, to now the it's, onion loaf. It's, it's quite the a morph that that yes. the guys take. Leaving the city of Hamilton aside, who is your? I am leaving Donald Trump aside because you've done him so much. <laughs> who is the best cartoon? Who is the best politician or best person? Best celebrity? I mean, you do a lot of politics. Who's the best person to draw? Right now? Yeah, right now. Who's your favorite? Uh, I, I do like drawing Justin Trudeau. He's fun. Uh, only because I think we're saturated by Donald Trump and we're undersaturated, I think, with, with Justin Trudeau. So he, he's, he's fun to draw. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. CAA 
Canadian Auto Association did a poll of a thousand drivers. And of those who have smoked marijuana either medicinally or recreationally, and we know that it's about to become legal, so we're told, um, a fair number of them, a 29% said their ability to drive is the same after using marijuana and when sober. And 8% actually said, I'm a way better driver when I'm stoned. (laughs) And this terrifies me Mm -hmm. because Graham, we don't, we don't have anyone in society. I don't think who would, who would actually look you in the eye and say, I'm a better driver when I'm drunk. Or I'm a better driver when I'm so tired that I can barely stay awake. Mm-hmm. Or I'm a better driver mm-hmm. when my kids are screaming in the back seat or mm. whatever. Yeah. But we have people who apparently honestly believe that their, their ability to navigate the roads is superior when they're stoned, which mm-hmm. to me is, says they're going to keep doing it. Mm-hmm. Well, what I don't get is that they, they've got these surveys, but do they have... I don't think they have many studies to prove one way or the other, do they? I mean... To say whether you could be a better driver? Yeah. I mean, I'm not... Listen, I'm no expert on, on <laughs> marijuana use. I am a cartoonist and everything, but... And you might assume you don't that I smoke dope all the time and I'm drawing Fred Eisenberger, but um, I'm not talking about myself. I, I'm just going to say, look, it sounds like we're going into this whole new measure, this new reality, without a lot of studies on, on this specific issue. I know it's become a concern. I know Kathleen Wynne has talked about it and, and I think police are, are sort of freaking police out. Police are very it. concerned about yeah, it. Yeah, obviously. Um, and I mean, enough of us have tried marijuana to, to, to say, uh, yeah, I, I get out of my head and I don't know where I am and I can't even walk in a straight line, let alone drive a car. So yeah, if, if perhaps if you're a heavy user and, and you know, you're, the effects are really don't have much effect on your brain, then perhaps you can drive better. But uh, I think the vast majority of people are going to say, no, it's like booze and it's not good for you to But mix. even if you were a medicinal user, even if this was for a reason that was beyond just recreational, if you were on morphine, mm-hmm. now I know I'm not arguing that marijuana and morphine are the same thing, but if you were on some other heavy duty medication, mm-hmm you would not say, oh, they're fine. They can drive better when they're on that. Mm -hmm. And again, I'm not arguing that marijuana and these heavy duty things, but there is some impact. We know there is an impact. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, there's, there's all kinds of medications that we all take, right? And on the directions, it says you shouldn't use, you know. Heavy machinery or drive. Or whatever. And I guess there are certain medications that the doctor can actually say, you're not allowed to drive with this. But who's to, you know, does that mean your license is taken away? I guess that's what happens. Uh, Presumably. But, but there's other, you know, there's there's um, psychotic drugs and that are prescription and illegal that people are driving around on, on the road all the time now. And is there any concern for that? I, I think there should be a concern, obviously. Again, my issue here is not so much with the concept that we're going to have people on the road. Because we know, I mean, we still have people who drive drunk, despite all the ads and the public service announcements and the change of attitudes and everything else. We still have people who drive drunk. So you're going to have people who drive stoned. The difference is, I go back to my original point, we don't have, I think, anybody who says, oh yeah, I'm a better driver when I'm drunk. I might drive drunk, but that's not because I'm actually seeing it as an enhancement of my skills. Mm -hmm. Here you're saying, you're having people saying, 
this actually is going to make me safer on the road. So it's not just about getting them off the road because they're trying to skirt the law. They're actually seemingly, apparently, thinking they're benefiting society by doing this. Are these the people that are taking medicinal marijuana? It doesn't say. It just says users. Yeah. But regardless, we know if marijuana had no impact, why would you take it? Mm. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we know that, I mean, it's a drug. It's not heroin, but it's a drug. It's going to have some impact. You're right. We take Tylenol and drive. Mm -hmm. Should we be saying you can't take anything? I don't think we can go that far. You could take like a a big meal of of turkey dinner. And who knows? (laughs) It makes you really sleepy. Yeah, you could be high on tryptophan. Like there's all kinds of- Or low on tryptophan. But you know, this, this is an issue where, again, they haven't done enough studies and we've had- other jurisdictions that have legalized, decriminalized marijuana, and where are the studies from those? Where where are the studies from Colorado and Washington and, and the, Netherlands, the Netherlands? You know, there, there's there's got to be some where are these people who say that it, wor- it works for me, great. Well, where where's the uh, sci- scientific adv- evidence for that? We and the last thing I read about this is that we have an ability, there is some sort of roadside test. This is the other part. We don't really even have the thing in place yet to test all mm-hmm. these people. If a cop pulls someone over and sees bloodshot eyes, mm-hmm. and if they smell of Cheetos, um, <laughs> you, we don't have like a, a breathalyzer. The, the, the process to test them is far mm-hmm. more involved mm-hmm. and many more steps than simply a roadside mm-hmm. breath test. That also has to be of some concern that we are going to be potentially legalizing this stuff and we don't necessarily know what it, you're right we don't necessarily have all the answers to what this thing is going to do you're listening to the scott radley show weeknights from seven to nine on am 900 chml we are chatting about this uh, caa survey that just came out that says that a number of people believe that they would be better drivers if they were high on marijuana or cannabis, whatever you want to describe it as. And one of the interesting things, Graham, that the story goes on to say and uh, is that the survey respondents say a public education campaign is necessary. That's what we were talking about. But that this needs to be uh, camp targeting young drivers because they are far more likely to be users mm. of pot. That's something that has not really been discussed much with this whole debate about legalizing marijuana. Mm-hmm. It's my belief that as soon as you make it legal in the early age or the beginning age is 19, I'm, ab- I don't know what you think. I'm absolutely of the belief that the, maybe not the majority, but a huge component of the group who is going to be buying marijuana mm. falls between 19 and mm-hmm. somewhere <laughs> between 25 and 30, mm-hmm. who happen to also be beginning or reasonably beginning drivers with not as much experience as other people. So you've got two yeah. factors you're throwing in together. Yeah, and and you know, I'm I'm a, a father of two girls, one of which is about to become a, a young driver, and you know, if you have kids of your own, obviously you're going to be the first person that goes into a car with the with your kid and 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 drives around, and you're going to be the one giving you, them advice and everything of how to drive, but then you bring in this new element <laughs> of marijuana, and is it going to be as easy for parents to talk about? experiences with marijuana, their own experiences, because let's face it, a, a great number of people out there, parents have done it, but would never want to admit it to their I've kids. I've done drugs, not the talk. I've, I've done, I've, I've tried marijuana. I've tried marijuana and a vast amount of other uh, drugs, but marijuana is the issue here. This is where 
you're going to have to broach that subject with your kid and you're going to have to, you know, you're going to have to give obviously your own bias, whether it, you know, is it good to drive and mix marijuana? I would hope most parents would say, no, it's not a good idea, Johnny. You're not going to be getting high and driving. I mean, there's two concerns there. And I think a big concern for a lot of parents is allowing their kid to go and drive. I mean, you've, you've, I'm, I'm, I'm freaking out by the fact that I'm sending my 16-year-old to a car. I mean, it's, it's I've been down that road and believe me, I, the same for every parent who's ever had a kid mm-hmm. take the wheel. Mm-hmm. I remember watching my son a couple of years ago, a few years ago now, drive out of the driveway for the first time after he got his license. And it's like, mm-hmm. oh. Yeah. You're, oh. you're crying because, oh, he's old now and now he's on his own, but you're also crying because you think he's going to smash your car. He's got a 2,000 or 5,000 pound <laughs> bullet now at his disposal exactly. and uh, he came back safely. But a couple other things that came out of this survey though, that I find really interesting. One is the majority of people who took this survey believe there will be an increase in the number of marijuana impaired driving issues. So mm-hmm. there is apparently very few people who believe this is not going to be a factor. Mm-hmm. Are we all pessimists? Are we all mm-hmm. cynics and skeptics? Maybe, mm-hmm. but the majority of people believe that this will be sure. an issue that has to be dealt with. Sure. And 75% of respondents either strongly or somewhat support stricter penalties for drug impaired drivers. Mm-hmm. But that goes to your point then. So mm-hmm. this doesn't seem like the ducks are lined up in a row yet for the day on, if it's going to actually be July 1st next year. Yeah to begin throwing the gates open and saying, okay, go. Because yeah. if everything's not ready. It's it's one of many, many issues that seems to be, uh, has to be dealt with, but hasn't been dealt with. And that's why the police are, are freaking out the way they are. And uh, this is one of those issues that I don't think a lot of people have given much thought to really, uh, mixing marijuana and driving. And how is that going to affect, you know, if you're, if you've a person who's never touched marijuana in your life, you're going out on the streets and you're going to have to, contend with people who are mixing driving and marijuana use. Now, you know, it, does it sound, you know, that we, we should all be getting freaked out over it? I, I don't think so, but it, it's going to be more problematic. And all you got to do is look at the statistics from other jurisdictions where marijuana has been legalized. One other thing that I want to bring up in this, because I did not realize this and I don't know the answer to this. I'm going to have to look this up because I'm reading a story about this online as we talk right now. And Ontario Transportation, let me read this sentence and you tell me if you hear the same thing in this that I'm hearing. Ontario Transportation Minister Stephen Del Duca has previously said proposed changes to Ontario's road safety laws would align drug and alcohol impaired driving offenses across the province. Hmm. How are they not already aligned? <laughs> that's, that's what stands out to me. So right now, okay, I, they I'm... They done their homework. They haven't done their work. But reading this, I would have just assumed that at this point, if you drive impaired, mm-hmm. you're driving impaired. Mm-hmm. Regardless of the material. Yeah. It's, it's a wild west right now. Uh, and you could look at that as an example there. The other thing I, I don't understand is there, there are still these dispensaries that are opening up all over the place. And, you know, we just had one that opened up on, uh, uh, Dundurn actually. Uh, and it's on my walk back home actually from the spectrum. I don't know why is that opening up? It just opened up a couple months ago. Jumping the gun, getting an early start. Is it? I mean, I don't know. <laughs> building, building its clientele early, so when the stuff becomes legalized, everyone knows. Where, I don't. I mean, no, I. But we all we don't even know where it's going to be sold, do we? They're going to build like a bunch of, of of LCBO type things, but this dispensary is not going to be operational in eight months. So why? 
There is a lot of stuff that is confusing about this, but right at the, as I say, right at the top of the list for me, um, this story about driving in marijuana, because again, not to be too repetitive, but we clearly are going to have to do the same work on attitudes and beliefs and thought processes that we did when once upon a time you would drive up to the cottage with a can of beer between your legs as you drove up there and that was cool. Well, now nobody would do that, but apparently some think that's okay with marijuana. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. You're going to have a safe injection clinic somewhere in the downtown of Hamilton. Uh, it is an issue that has raised some concerns, just like our last thing we talked about, about mm-hmm. uh, driving while high on pot. Uh, this has raised some issues with the police. They are expressing some concerns about having this. Do you share concerns? Do you... Let me put it a different way. I asked this question the day we chatted with her. You are a very compassionate man. You want good things for people in this city, Mm. but are you compassionate enough that you would want it on your block (laughs) or a block away from your house? Mm. Would you be that compassionate? Well, a lot of these problems are happening downtown. So we have a place in mind. At least that's, I think- An area. the, The politicians have that. I think- uh, public health has that. I mean, I don't think they're going to drop this clinic in the middle of, you know, Wilson Street in, in Ancaster, for example. Uh, so the problems are obviously downtown. Um, th- that's where. But there are people who live downtown who are not no. using drugs. Uh, yeah, yeah. Who live in apartments and condos and things. And if we're, depending on where it's going to go, we are talking about building and mm-hmm. expanding and growing the downtown. Mm-hmm. You know, I I remember doing this uh, cartoon back in 2012. I think they were going to bring in um, uh, pot pipes, or not pot, crack pipes. I remember city council ruled against that at the time. And here we are, uh, what, five or six years later, and we're dealing with this issue where we have a seemingly worse situation with the opioids and all that, and intravenous drug use seems to have just gotten worse and worse. I think times have changed. I think attitudes have changed. And all you had to do was go and listen to uh, city council. And a lot of those councillors who were very much opposed to the crack pipe uh, thing uh, are very much on side with public health in this. I I, I still question whether they are really on side or whether they've acquiesced to the idea that we don't want to have people dying and we don't Mm want to have people injecting all over the city. So let's at least try and... Mm-hmm. do it in one place. I, there, there are a number of issues for me about this, a number of questions I have. Mm-hmm. Whether it's an issue, I, that's probably not a word I should use because I don't really, I asked, but I still don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, my biggest question about this is going to be, on what basis do we believe that a vast majority of people who are using these drugs are going to do it here? Mm-hmm. Some will, I assume, some will. I think a lot of them will still do it at home. But we're talking about the most desperate cases of people who are homeless or without jobs. But if you're that desperate, and and uh, this, uh, if this sounds callous, it's really not supposed to be. I really wonder, if you're that desperate, do you even bother to make the effort to go to this place, or do you mm-hmm. just get your drugs and do it where you are? Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's worked in, in places like Vancouver, and I think there's these pop-up places in, in Toronto where, where they're actually getting a lot of people show up, so... If it's worked there, it, it, it will probably work here in Hamilton. How does, and this is a question that uh, Elizabeth Richardson addressed, and, and I appreciated her doing so. How do you, as a city, put one of these things in place without 
kind of giving your tacit approval to mm-hmm. using drugs. Because what I was what I was kind of surprised by that I didn't know how the process worked, how the mechanics of this work is, and I should have guessed this because I don't know how else it would work, but you don't go to this place and get your drugs. They're not dealing you your drugs. No. You go to your dealer. You buy your stuff. You carry it through the city, which as I understand it is still illegal to carry around mm-hmm. illegal drugs, but we're going to then, we're allowing you essentially, we're not going to have a cop standing at the door to arrest you because mm. you've got your drugs no. there. And one of the real concerns that they've had is that the dealers now gravitate to this area because look, why am I... 18 blocks away when I have all my business right here. Well, then you would think the police would be in favor of such a, a, a thing coming then, right? It's, it's easier. The job easier for them. But you would then defeat the purpose of this. If you make a single arrest in the vicinity of this building, mm. you will scare everybody away forever and they'll never come back. So it, it almost to me seems like, and this is the question that I have about this, you're almost creating an unwitting, unwittingly creating a safety zone around mm-hmm. this because you can't arrest someone at the door yeah. or no one will ever show up again. I, I think though, the other issue though is is that a lot of these drugs that these people are taking are, you know, there's dangerous chemicals that are killing people at an alarming rate. And perhaps police surveillance, they'll, they'll turn the blind eye, but they'll be able to surveil those dealers who are giving the bad so stuff. So when they leave to go home... Yeah. If they didn't sell their full stash and they're carrying something now five blocks mm. away, you can pick them up. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Mm. Maybe that's how you do it, I suppose. I think, you know what, with the legalization of marijuana, I think it's a gateway to more legalization of other drugs. Is that a bad thing? It's up to you to decide on your own. Well, it's a very libertarian way to look at it. That, oh, sure, you know what, you want to take crystal meth, knock yourself out. I, I. It's, it's, I know. It, it, you really have to, it's hard to wrap yourself, your head around this, but... These people are addicted and they're dying in the streets. What do you do? Do you just let them die? Uh, you know, there's there's a unseeming thing, but if you just turn a blind eye, more people are going to get affected and die. And I can't imagine though, Graham, and again, like th- these are questions that I'm sure there are answers for. Uh, I just don't, I don't have the answer for them myself. And they're mm-hmm. interesting things that, that come to mind for me. If you, it's not you, but let's just for fun, let's say Graham Mackay was a, crystal meth addict and you decided you were going to, or whatever it was, heroin, whatever, and you're going to come and use the safe injection facility for your own health. If you're in that kind of situation, I can't believe they're going to make you start signing legal waivers when you show up. Because even if you did, that couldn't be enforced in court because I wasn't in my right mind and Mm -hmm. all the rest. So if you then, and Dr. Richardson also pointed out the users inject themselves. They, there's a monitor there. Mm-hmm. The nurses don't do the injections. The mm-hmm. users go into a room and inject themselves. Mm-hmm. And they don't screen the drugs before you take them. Mm. I thought they did. I thought in some cases they actually do like a little Well, test. maybe. I didn't think that they, that was the answer. But let's say you take something. Let's say while you're there in this governmental mm-hmm. place, you overdose or you take something and you die. Mm. Who's responsible? Are, are, is a family of somebody going to say, look, you let my family member, and yes, he or she was in terrible straits, but you let them die right under your roof. <laughs> is this now going to open the door for legal there, considerations? I don't, you know, I'm no lawyer. I don't know. All I know is that I think 
there's some some things in the criminal code that have to be changed. There has to be some amnesty for for the people that come in to use the drugs and all that sort of thing. And I'm sure under that umbrella will be some kind of thing that if you step over here, you're you're just giving up you're, your rights for you're on your own. Yeah, exactly. But this is a better place to to do this than you know on a street corner. You know, so it may be or. a 10% chance of dying here as opposed to 60% on the street corner. So exactly. we'll take our chances. And I think they, chances. they hang out there so that if they do overdose. And they do have those services yeah. that they presumably can mm-hmm. in, I guess, many circumstances help the person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it's a bad thing, quite frankly. And I, I wouldn't have thought this uh, five years ago when I did the crack pipe thing. I, I made a joke about it, actually. I, I, I showed... The Lister block as, you know, this will be the new home for <laughs> crack pipes are us or something. And ha ha, that's so funny. But, you know, in the five years, you know, I've, I've seen so many in, uh, documentaries and read out all this sort of stuff on the the evils of opioids and fentanyl and all this sort of thing. And it's, I think it's scaring a lot of people. And I'd rather have the government, you know, take some responsibility and make sure that these people aren't dropping dead like they have been in in places like British Columbia. So is it then, are you a bad person if you, if when they announce where this is going to be and they say it's going to be somewhere downtown and you have an apartment that's a block or two away, or you have a condo that's a block Mm -hmm. or two away or or a business that's a block or two away and you say, yeah, nah, no. Mm -hmm. Does that make you a bad person then? (laughs) To be NIMBY? To be NIMBY? Uh, In this case, because we're not, again, we're not talking about something that is this is going to be an obvious thing. Even the, even the studies and the stories from Vancouver where these things are, say, yeah, you know, they are lots of people hanging around this place. It's not a, a subtle mm-hmm. thing. So is it, is it, are you a bad person if you pull a NIMBY in this particular case? Uh, yeah, but I, if you go into some of those areas of downtown Hamilton, I don't think there are a lot of people, there'd be less NIMBYism as opposed to a place in Dundas or Stony Creek or wherever. Uh, you have a better chance of, of planting that, that clinic down there because, and you know, there's areas down there that are, you know, kind of gross to be in, you know, I, I hate to say it, but it's true. And, and those are the, the places, uh, that, that tend to need the, these sort of th- places more than any other place in the city. You did a cartoon earlier this week. Monday or Tuesday, as I recall, yes. on this topic with the NIMBY angle to it. <laughs> and it was a, a, well, you describe what the cartoon Well, I, I showed uh, a place that's about to op- be opened up by public health for- uh, Injections, an injection a safe place, injection place. Right next to uh, what I call Dirty Lou's <laughs> booze house or something <laughs> like that. And it's like a bunch of drunk people inside. There's a drunk guy outside and then Lou's saying, oh, there goes the neighborhood. <laughs> So, you know, we have these places for addicts of alcohol, right? And it's a safe place. That's what bars are. You know, most of us go there to have like a cocktail or a beer or whatever, but there's a lot of people that go there and they get drunk. And that's where they get their alcohol. And you see these, (laughs) I I don't frequent those places downtown, (laughs) but you see them, you know where they are. Uh, They're dive bars, right? And uh, this is where you put them. That's where you put the... Supervised injections. And you know, the reason I asked you that, besides the fact that people should look it up because it was a hilarious cartoon, (laughs) uh, but besides that, the other part about this that really, uh, and I never got to ask Dr. Richardson about this, because on first blush, it's it's crazy, it's stupid, it's silly, and you go, that's ridiculous. But let me throw it out there because the more I thought about it, the more I thought, well, I don't know if it's that crazy. There are people who are in the downtown who are drinking... We've, the Spectator has done stories in the past, guys who are drinking Aqua Velva and other, 
should should we be having a place like this for the worst of the worst alcoholics so they're not killing themselves on the streets? If we're doing this for drug users, and I know that it's for clean needles and for overdoses and but drinking aqua velva and other chemicals and vast amounts of that's not good for you either. Mm. Should this extend to alcoholics? Uh well, like I, I, I think we already have those facilities, though. Like I say, these divey bars, but but, but I they're mean, not. They're, they're but there's no like, nurses, or well, maybe there's a nurse. I don't know, but there's no, nobody on duty. Uh, well, I think we've got programs that help, uh, you know, alcoholics, Alcoholics Anonymous. We've got, you know, country clubs in Guelph and stuff like that where people can go and get treated. And I think there's. But those aren't the. You're right, but those aren't the people who. Those are people who are. Well enough well, off do. to avoid, yeah. or to afford those. Or if I understand correctly, I've never been to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, but my understanding is you have to show up to mm-hmm. that sober. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. What about this person who is now put, drank himself into a dangerous place in the downtown on a freezing cold night? Yeah. Should we be extending this and say, look, we should be having anyone who's got an addiction. This is where you come and we will Obviously, supervise yes. your addiction. Obviously, they, there, there should be more. But that's not the issue right now. Right now, it's about drugs. It's not about alcohol, right? You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Uh, Graham, Prime Minister Trudeau is just on his way back or is back from Beijing after his Chinese trade mission. Didn't come home with any free trade stuff, whatever. The interesting thing for me about this was that he made an effort to tell the Chinese that you should... As, uh, the reports are anyway, more rights here and better human rights here and this and that and the other. And on its face, I don't have a, I suppose I don't have an issue with our leader making those mm. attempts. Mm. I mean, good for him for trying to tell them. But mm. the part of it I do wonder about is if you're going to go over there and you're going to try to make hay for a trade mission, I guess I'm wondering, we are a little gnat in the scope of the world. Mm-hmm. And while you can do that, and that's fine, what what should Canada's role be in pushing <laughs> freedoms and Western values and all this? Honestly, I mean, it's it, because I, the, the part about this that I wonder about is, again, I don't have an issue with him making those, making that case to the Chinese leaders for this. But when you hear the response from the Chinese state-run media, which is the mouthpiece of the Chinese government, so that's what they're actually saying, mm-hmm. it sounds like he ticked them off mm-hmm. more than anything else. So if you're going there to try and build our economy and build trade, is it our, should we be doing that? Mm-hmm. Is it our, our obligation, our moral right, our moral responsibility to do that? Or should you just go over and say, let's just talk money? Mm-hmm. It's interesting because it's like a tug of war almost, and he's in the middle you know, NAFTA's coming apart. And then this whole free trade thing with China just came out of the blue, really. Um, is this practice for dealing with the United States? I think uh, he, he, he's not going to get anywhere with these, this progressive agenda with the Americans. We know that. And, and that's already, that's off the table. And why, why he thought he could go over to this, you know, authoritarian country, China, and, and try to preach his very progressive ideas to, you know, a very hardline country of a billion people from a, what, a population of, what, 35, 36 million. I don't know. Was he just, was he doing it to show the voters back home? I think it was, but it, it's, it was a bit of a disaster. Um, I, I, I see what you're saying, and I, I understand that, yes, it, it's nice to promote ourselves and, 
you know this this government especially is 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 doing lots of great things you know what's happening in the united states with gender things uh, and and the sexual harassment thing trudeau looks very good <laughs> in this day and age compared to what's happening there and the whole uh, revolution that's or evolution that's happening um but you to 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 mess with the chinese just seems well, let's very leave, naive. Let's like leave that. Justin Trudeau out of this for just a second. Let's say it was not Justin Trudeau, but let's say it was Stephen Harper that mm. went over there and said, "You need more freedoms. You need the." And his his agenda would not have been as progressive. But if he went over and pushed Western values, so this is not an issue of Justin Trudeau. It's Canada's leader mm. or Canada's identity, whoever that is. Is that something that we have a? a is that a positive thing for us to do? Ultimately, is it positive to do it or is it self-defeating, even though it might be morally a good thing to do, but ultimately we're trying to get a trade deal and you are just angering the people you're trying to trade, that you can't win that fight. Yeah, I, I think it's it comes with the job of any prime minister and it's happened as far as I can remember going back to, I think Jean Chrétien began a lot of the, these trade uh, uh, dealings with, with China. And every prime minister, going back to him, would always talk about human rights. And it was almost like this little ceremonial thing where it was a bit of a finger-wagging thing. That was always put aside after a little bit of... And then they got down to the, the details of, okay, well, let's deal with beef or milk or whatever. So it was just... Was it just, as you say, to show the people back home that we did this? I think Trudeau went a few steps further than previous governments. Uh you know, I'm, I remember doing cartoons about Stephen Harper. I, I I was critical of him because he wasn't he wasn't doing enough ab- about criticizing China on human rights record. Um, but but I think what what Kretsch or uh, Trudeau has done is he's added these other things that have uh, have helped uh, his base back home. And I I I kind of feel like the Chinese felt they were used a little bit, you know, for that. Uh, audience back home. It is. See, to me, it's one thing. And, and again, I, I'm i not going to dump on him for this one. I think it, it may not have helped his mm-hmm. financial or trade mission. Um, but this is not like when, when Ronald Reagan stood up and said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. You are working from a position of equality or even greater than equality at that time. Mm-hmm. The States was the world power. You can flex your muscles. I just don't know what muscles, what, whoever the leader of Canada is, mm-hmm. I don't know what muscle we have to flex when we're standing in Beijing mm-hmm. where there's a billion people. I, I think Trudeau is trying to come to grips with some of the criticism that Canadians have been uh, directing towards our trade agreements with repressive governments like China. And he's he's answering that, Right. Um, he's he's the most progressive prime minister we've had in years, but he's also in the liberal tradition trying to promote trade. He has to in China. They have to do something with with China because it's a growing economy and it's going to be the the biggest economy overtaking the U.S. With the thing that's happened the, with NAFTA, they have to go to China. And yeah, I mean, he might have set some kind of thing with the Chinese. Maybe going forward. He'll, he'll, he's learned his lesson. He's got this out of the way. Then they can start concentrating on, you know, different trade things. I don't know why free trade has to be the, the thing that we're going after. Uh, but, but obviously something has to make up for that gap that could possibly come if NAFTA collapses. 
I, I, yeah, we, you know what, we need way more time to talk about the whole free trade thing with China because it seems that it benefits them a whole lot more than us, again, with the amount of stuff that they would be sending us. But that's, again, that's a discussion that we can take up for another day. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. People are looking for Christmas gifts, and boy, do I have a perfect Christmas gift for you. If you need something that is funny, well done, local, something that someone in your family who lives in Hamilton would enjoy, Graham Mackay, editorial cartoonist of the Hamilton Spectator, tell us about You Might Be From Hamilton If. Yes, it's a book that I've put together over the last couple of years, and it's been out on uh, bookshelves at uh, better bookstores across the city. And it's a book about Hamilton. And not just the stereotypical things about the lunch bucket, say, of Hamilton and steel mills and all that. It's just some, it's sort of an update of some of the stereotypes in this city. Hipsters, our music scene, uh, our our vast array of food is not just about donuts anymore in Hamilton. It's about, you know, a foe or or, uh, um, sushi and that sort of thing. Uh, It's, it's, there's a whole bunch of topics that might come out from left field when you when you turn the page that that's a weird image but yeah hey that's right that it will ring a bell when you when you when you go through the pages of of this book and uh, I highly recommend it for your uh, your loved ones this Christmas season. Well, it is it is all the inside jokes. We were talking earlier about how you can make fun of your own school, but not of someone else's school. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's all the inside jokes that we who live in Hamilton can poke fun at ourselves, but if someone else were to say it, you would not invite them for Christmas dinner because mm-hmm. it's all the self-flagellating shots to the gut of... Uh, Hamiltonia. Very, very funny. But, you know, I, as a cartoonist, I've also learned that you can't make fun of our city and make fun of some of the characters of the city. So it's a very fun kind of look yes, at our city. very light, friendly. It's not mean or anything. No, no, no. Uh, you might be from Hamilton if it is available many, many places. Probably also, is it the spec at the front desk? The spec store. And I might add next Saturday from uh, one to four, I'll be at the Hamilton store and that's on James Street North. So make a point. If you and need one of them and you want it autographed and he and Graham does the best autographs because it comes individually cartoonized. Yes, I do a cartoon for each book. Thank you for coming in, Graham. Appreciate it. The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.